0: Texas State University's Communication Design Program is excited to announce the State of Black Design Conference, a three day virtual event March 4th, 5th, and 6th. This year's theme is Family Reunion, and there'll be over 50 amazing speakers, including author and educator Jelani Cobb and world renowned poet, activist, and educator Nikki Giovanni. This year debuts the State of Black Design's Resume Book Initiative. So if you're a Black Design student or you're a Black designer looking for your next role, then listen up. You'll be able to submit your resume and your portfolio to the resume book, along with your institution of study and major if you're a student, and recruiters and employers will have access to it before the event. If you're interested and you want to be included in the resume book, send your info to blackdesign at txstate.edu with the subject line, Resume Book. You have until March 3rd to submit. The State of Black Design Conference is brought to you with the support of the University of Texas at Austin, Universal Pictures Home Entertainment, Microsoft, General Motors, Design for America, Sevilla, IDSA, AIGA, and Revision Path. Tickets are available at txstate.edu forward slash black design. Just click the register now button. There'll also be a link in the show notes as well. Hope to see you there. Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but can't find diverse, talented candidates? Then we have something that can help, our job board. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to browse listings or to place your own. This week on the job board, Pollen Midwest is looking for an art director. Pollen is based in Minneapolis, but this is a remote position. Work & Co. is looking for a senior product manager and a product management lead. Both of these positions are for Work Co.'s office in Brooklyn, New York. Architecture Plus Information is looking for a graphic-slash-branding-slash-experience designer in New York City. W.W. Norton & Company, Inc. is looking for a design assistant in New York City. Pentagram is looking for a graphic designer in New York City civic actions is looking for a product designer this is a remote position and the predictive index is looking for a senior ux researcher this is a remote position for just 99 dollars, we will feature your listing on our job board for 30 days and help spread the word about it to our audience of listeners we also offer an annual job board subscription for companies and organizations Make sure to head over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more information on these listings and others. Apply today and tell them you heard about the job through Revision Path. Get started with us and expand your job search today. RevisionPath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. And before we get into this week's interview, I just want to remind you once again about 28 Days of the Web. 28 Days of the Web is where we showcase a different black designer or developer for each day during this month. In celebration of Black History Month. We've been doing this now for nine years going on now. So you can check out this year's honorees and look at previous years of honorees over at 28daysoftheweb.com. And while you're over there, you can also pick up some merch. I've got a special collection running just for this month of special 28 Days of the Web merch. You can get a hoodie, you can get a mug, you can get a sticker. And while you're there, you can also pick up a Revision Path hoodie or a mug or a t shirt or something. All sales from this merch go right back into the production of this podcast. It's a really great way to support what we're doing over here. Thank you so, so much for everyone who's already purchased a merch. Now let's take some time out and thank our accessibility sponsor for this episode, Brevity & Wit. Brevity & Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They accomplish this through graphic design, presentations, and workshops around IDEA, inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility. If you're curious to learn how to combine a passion for ITEA with design, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit, creative excellence without the grind. Now for this week's interview, I'm talking with Aziz Ali Balagun, a lead product designer at Netflix on the globalization team and a co-founder of Design to Divest. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do.
1: My name is Aziz Ali Balogan. I am a product designer at Netflix, a product design lead at Netflix on the globalization team. And what that really entails is that we're looking at how do we enable Netflix products and the content that we create to live in local markets, but also experience global audiences. So I work a lot on the enterprise tools or the the tools that help us create the subtitling assets, the dubbing assets, and all of those things that actually help our our content become very, very locally resonant in local markets and local geographies, but also accessible to global audiences.
0: How has 2022 been going for you so far?
1: It's been going really great. It's interesting. 2022 has been, we're in the end of January and It's been incredibly productive, quite a lot of work that I've been doing in the beginning of the year. Um, I've been invited to do a couple of like different types of projects that I feel were very, very impactful. And I think it's just like there's so many like seeds and so many things that have been planted in 2020 and 2021 that are starting to kind of blossom a little bit, which is both good and also, I'm getting to a point where I need to like make sure I'm I'm prioritizing myself and my my rest. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. You know, I want to make sure that 2020 doesn't like lead to to burnout for me with opportunities coming my way.
0: Is there like anything special in particular that you want to achieve this year?
1: I mean, the biggest thing that I think is like really focusing on some of the work that I'm doing with Design to Divest, but like really starting to produce more content or areas and where people from marginalized backgrounds, particularly the black communities and African communities and indigenous communities to be able to access design differently, access design learning differently um, and be able to participate in the creation of the world that we live in through, through their own cultural knowledge base. And so like that type of work is something that I'm, I'm looking to start to like really, tangible eyes and more meaningful ways. And so I'm pretty hopeful that, you know, with all of the work that I'm doing and the projects and the communities that I'm a part of that will I'll be able to, you know, create these platforms that allow or bring in more Black, African and Indigenous creatives to the forefront of creating some of the institutions that are going to shape the future.
0: Now, let's talk about the work that you're doing at Netflix. You're the product design lead for the globalization team there. Now, you mentioned what you're doing kind of has to do with subtitles and dubbing. And I can only imagine probably after the success of titles like Squid Game and Lupin and stuff that you probably have had a lot on your plate. But but tell me more about uh, the work that you do.
1: Yeah, I mean, so there's it's a lot of stakeholder management. and So it's interesting in the sense that like, The team that I'm working on really crosses so much of what Netflix does. And it's like an integral part to growth. You know, as Netflix grows our global subscriber base and grows into global markets, it's incredibly important that we're effective in the way that we localize our content. And as we start to even increase the volume of content that we produce, the volume of film and volume of, of movies, and really trying to create platforms for different geographical spaces outside of Hollywood to be able to share their stories. So a lot of the work is like when you go onto Netflix and you are, you're able to see like the option to choose like twenty different subtitles or watch things and 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 dubbing, like, All of that stuff is like work that I'm directly impacting uh, and the team that I work on directly impacts. And we're working with linguists, we're working with project managers, we're working kind of across the board with so many different types of stakeholders uh, to ensure that there is quality attached to the subtitles and, and the dubbing. And that if a director in Nigeria creates a television show or a movie, that same movie can be enjoyed by somebody in Sweden, in Swedish, and it doesn't lose a lot of the cultural nuances that represent how that content or how that TV show or film was created. And so it's a, a heavy task because it's very difficult to like even measure things like what is a good subtitle, right? You know, what is a good dubbing or voiceover? And are we staying true can we make sure that we are staying true to the content because when you think about different languages it's very very many different, if you if you're you know lucky enough to be able to speak multiple languages you know that like there are certain nuances and certain kind of things that just don't translate and you want to be able to translate those cultural nuances so people start to really understand what it actually means to experience the culture that that film or that that television show that uh, those characters are actually situated in And so there's a lot of like really trying to figure out how do we communicate also like creating a lot of the workflows that allow our stakeholders the project managers internally at Netflix with the linguist and other vendors that we use in order to create all of these assets. Like how do we allow them to do this work very, very effectively and at the volume and scale of the amount of content that we produce on a yearly basis.
0: So talk to me more about the team. Like, what does the makeup look like?
1: It's a typical product team. I mean, you have like your designers. So we have, so like I lead a particular area of the globalization design side. I have two other design partners who are also design leads in in other areas. I work with a product manager and I'm in constant contact with the globalization project managers and program managers as well as like vendors and linguists, in order to really understand what is necessary and how to create the best conditions for their workflows to be successful in delivering on the subtitling and dubbing and and other like localization assets. So the core team is like your you know I'll have my UI front end team and back end team, a designer and me as a designer, a project manager, and we're like the core product team, like building out all of the tools. And then we're in constant communication with the project managers, the vendor managers, the linguist who are actually authoring and creating a lot of the subtitling and localization assets um, in order to ensure that we're providing the tools that are really supporting their workflows in a positive way.
0: So Netflix has linguists that are doing the translating. I mean, as they're listening through to the content and making sure that those subtitles, like you said, are are kind of accurate to the plot, culturally accurate, etc.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a whole process there of like subtitle authoring, you know, and I can't get too deep into lots of that stuff, because I think it's one of the things that does set Netflix apart from some of the other services that you might encounter the level of detail that we go into trying to create good subtitles and there's a lot of experimentation and things that we're doing right now in order to enable that process to be better for our members
0: yeah i remember when squid game had come out and there had been some kind of talk about like oh well if you're if you're watching squid game don't watch it with subtitles because the subtitles aren't right or something like that or no it, it wasn't the subtitles it was the dubbing i think one of those two things but i mean i can imagine even with you know a show like that there's still going to be some sort of like cultural differences or things like that that get lost in translation
1: yeah i mean that's exactly right i mean there there's always going to be some dissonance and we're always testing things out to try to get it right you know and i think the one thing that's really great about the culture at netflix and how we go about designing and building product is like we experiment in order to figure out how we can learn and improve and constantly improve and so if we don't get something right the first time it's a learning experience for us you know we we take all of that feedback and use it to ensure that we're doing better as we move forward
0: what does an average day look like for you
1: Average day, it could span. So like I try to segment a little bit of like my days or my week. Some days I load up with meetings. So I'm meeting with engineers and my product manager partner and other stakeholders. And then other days I create that space for me to kind of just work. And I'm designing and creating different concepts that are related to the conversations that I've been having. So like kind of going through the process, but in the the, the whole design process, but in very, very short cycles. So like, it's not like spending three months or two weeks or just like doing like nothing but research, but like do longer cycles of like discovery research on a particular area that we're trying to improve operational efficiency on, and then take that summarize that research into some opportunities, create some concepts behind that, and then start to socialize that with engineering and product in order to start to tweak and do more of like, I try to do much more like co-creation, co-designing with the stakeholders, the engineers and, and product all together. That way, the decisions that are being made are are made with the right amount of input from the different internal stakeholders that influence how the product actually tangibilizes itself. So like my typical days typically would be, I have some times where I'm like dedicated, like I need time to like intake what's been told, all the information that I've gotten, and then start to visualize that into some sort of concept. And then a lot of the times I'm taking those concepts and like, in meetings and trying and doing a lot of co-design in order to fulfill requirements and understand like what the needs are directly with both the users and then my product stakeholders as well.
0: What would you say is the most challenging part about what you do?
1: Stakeholder management, maybe. And the reason that I would say that is when I think about the idea of like complexity, like what really makes anything complex is that you have a bunch of different competing priorities that happen at scale. And so being able to really clearly align all the different priorities that are happening from different parts of the process and different stakeholders into something that works, I think is the most difficult part. Because you're also like, I'm also constantly like listening and observing what people are saying, what people are doing. And then trying to translate that down into a language that can be understood by everyone who is involved. And as you know, like, you know, it's interesting as like we talk about language and linguistics, not only in like different languages, there are different languages within different industries. There are different languages within different professions. And so everyone might have a different way of communicating the same thing. And so oftentimes you can be in meetings where people are trying to communicate an idea or a concept with the language of their own profession. So like engineers might be communicating things in a certain way that's different from product. That's also slightly different from the way that the the type of language that design would use to communicate something. And then our end users are using a, a different type of language And trying to wrangle all of those different concepts and ideas in the way that people are trying to express what it is that they're trying to to think of in a way that everyone's aligned on and everyone kind of understands. And that's where, like, I feel like a lot of the true power of design comes, because once you start to take the language and start to visualize things, then people can have something to have an opinion about. They can have something to kind of analyze And say, like, that's not it, or that is it, or it's this and this, add this or that or or the other. But bringing life to the words that are being said by all of the people um, in the room and then allowing people to kind of mold what's been created to make sure that everyone's voices is really being heard.
0: And I would imagine, you know, language and linguistics probably influence a lot of the design work in general, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, just really trying to understand the nuances of it and and how those nuances can be misinterpreted. Because, you know, as you know, like it's it's a misinterpretation of even body language or a language or just a, a word or a concept can have dire consequences. And so it's important kind of operationally as well as it is like, you know, tangibly when we're trying to create the product and making sure that the things that we create are very very clear and transparent. Netflix is a it's, an, it's been an interesting place working. It's been the most different place that I've worked at and in my career because of the culture. The culture at Netflix is very unique. And as I mentioned a little bit before about the experimentation culture of just like trying to to do things to learn to get feedback and then course correct. That also kind of goes into like how we're managed as employees. And so like there's a lot of the idea of like freedom and responsibility and in the culture of feedback and all of those feed into the way that we're able to work and the way that we're able to kind of explore different areas of our profession and ways that we may have been restricted in other organizations. And so I think that's like a huge part. That I typically really enjoy at Netflix and enjoy working with a bunch of other people who have a similar mindset of kind of growth and discovery and learning. And it really shows through whenever we're able to create, learn from the products and the things that we create and prove it for our members.
0: Oh, nice. That's pretty cool. It sounds like Netflix does give you that that freedom. I know there's some companies of people whom I would love to interview, but they have a strict embargo on their employees cannot do podcasts or anything like that. So it's good that at least they let you all be able to sort of talk about your work and, and, you know, do other things freely.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's definitely encouraged, but I mean, there's definitely tons of stuff that we can't say, you know, right. (laughs) Um, I, you know, walk a line a lot of times, you know, trying to make sure that because there's so much transparency at Netflix. And I think that that's one of the really great parts of the culture at Netflix is that, you know, as an employee there, The leadership from the top down is always going to be as transparent as possible. But with that comes the responsibility of like, you know, we're letting you know all of this information. We don't expect you to go out and tell the world, you know, all of the secrets and things like this is like internal information that we are providing you context. So you're able to really do your job to the best of your ability. We don't want to hide things from you. But it comes with a lot of responsibility, you know, that level of transparency and that level of trust that our leaders kind of put in us as contributors to the mission that the company is trying to achieve.
0: Gotcha. I'm curious to kind of learn more about you, like your particular origin story. Tell me about where
1: you grew up. So both of my parents are from Nigeria, and I was born in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. So I grew up in Louisiana. And yeah, I spent most of my time, my childhood in Louisiana, and like went there to high school. I initially like I went to Southern University when I graduated high school for a couple of semesters um, okay. before switching over to design and going to University of Louisiana Lafayette. But growing up, I wouldn't have thought of myself as being a, a designer. I didn't really like; I wasn't exposed to it in that way. I mean, my dad was, was in school for architecture, so I was I was exposed to to that. But like the ideas of like industrial design or you know other aspects of design weren't really things that that came across. And I was more interested, like I played basketball growing up, but like I was more interested in trying to go to the NBA than I was (laughs) (laughs) with anything with anything else. But I was also like an avid reader. You know, I read quite a lot and I did a lot of writing, drawing. And so there was always that kind of creative aspect. But I imagined myself being a going into medical school rather than design. So
0: so when you went to University of Louisiana at Lafayette, though, you ended up majoring in industrial design. Like, talk to me about that.
1: Yeah. So, like, I mean, that was really the reason that I left Southern University, because they didn't have an industrial design program. So initially, whenever I was in school, like, my intention was to be a pediatric surgeon. And then I was actually, I was like, I'm going to study biomedical engineering and then go to medical school to be a pediatric surgeon. That was like my intention. And at the time, too, biomedical engineering was a, a fairly new field of like study within the higher education. So where if you really wanted to do that, you had to to get a master's degree. So while I was at Southern University, I needed to kind of create a curriculum for myself, working with my engineering faculty you know so i was doing like mechanical engineering and double majoring in like cellular molecular biology but after a while i was just like you know something about this is not really what i want to do like i would love to like create the medical tools and the medical devices like i'd love to like design those things but it was just something that this like didn't feel right in terms of the education for me while i was in engineering and i started doing some research And I was, you know, maybe I might like automotive design. And through that, I found what industrial design was. And I was like, "Whoa!" with this field, like I can actually like design medical devices, I can actually like go and design like prosthetic legs and all of these different things that I was interested in kind of creating. And that's how I found like University of Louisiana Lafayette because I was the only school in Louisiana at the time that had an industrial design program. So I ended up going there and and studying industrial design.
0: Okay, so you kind of I guess looked at another way to get into the medical field than by by looking at industrial design. Yeah. Okay. So in your sort of early post grad career, like after you left school you ended up going into jewelry design. (laughs) I'm curious, like what drew you to that?
1: It wasn't anything that like, like really like drew me. Like it was literally like, you know, I graduated like shortly after like a recession (laughs) in Louisiana. Like there are like no jobs, like really, you know, it was really difficult to get a design job, especially like in the South, like, like in Louisiana. So really what happened was that my portfolio was like a bunch of like, it was like pediatric medical tools and like prosthetics and stuff like that. And, and the, the jewelry company, which had a connection to some of our professors at University of Louisiana, looked at my work and they're like, we really like your aesthetic visually, like you have like a really good sense of style and taste, even and looking at the the medical <laughs> tools, the medical stuff that I design. And, and that's literally kind of how I jumped into into jewelry design i was interested in fashion i was interested in des- i was interested in design in general but i wasn't like intending to go be like uh, a jewelry designer if anything i would have wanted to go to do something in like footwear design at nike because that would have merged a lot of the the biomechanics and kind of medical kind of technical medical things that I was thinking about in terms of design with human performance. And so, yeah, jewelry design just kind of came about. It was an opportunity that kind of came about, but it really allowed me to start to understand what it meant to design for things that were going to be worn on people's bodies.
0: You know, Mm -hmm. that makes sense. How long were you a jewelry designer?
1: I was there for about two to two and a half years. Okay. Okay. It was a it was it was a quite an interesting experience. But even though, like while I was there, like so this is also like the field of user experience design or a lot of the digital product design, all of that stuff. Like that was still fairly like in its infancy. And so even while I was there, I participated in in some things, you know, some interface things that were very interesting and. Like, from there, I you know, after I left that company, I kind of wanted to discover, like, what is it that I really wanted to do? But I also needed to, like, look at where the market was going. Industrial design jobs weren't, like, in mass. You know, it wasn't, like, you know, a lot of these jobs that when you're de- de- designing, like, physical things, they don't have, like, incredibly large teams. And so, and just seeing kind of the digital world kind of pick up, I started to, Make some pivots over into like really learning that particular skill set. Branched off to try to do a little bit of like my own like freelance work,
0: mm-hmm.
1: both as an industrial designer. But then like what I found was that I was getting more more clients, more people looking for like branding and web development and more digital kind of stuff. Yeah, um, and that's kind of how I ended up pivoting or going to grad school to kind of learn really more of a service design kind of method to incorporate both like to be more agnostic about like what my skill sets delivered and more focused on what the outcome needed to be of whatever it is that a client or somebody wanted to create.
0: That's a good way to put it in terms of like trying to be more agnostic? Because what I'm hearing, and you can, you know, please correct me if I'm wrong here. It sounds like you were just trying to find where you were going to fit in. Like you've graduated, you have these design skills. And while there certainly were things that you wanted to do in terms of design, those opportunities just weren't available. So you were trying to see what could maybe your skills transfer into.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that that's a a good characterization. And I've always been like, you know, I'm, I'm I'm a person who Is always ready to adapt to a situation. I have my core values and principles that are, I'm going to be very, I'm going to stay in those and I'm not going to allow my value set and my principles to be swayed. But those principles aren't rigid outcomes. They just help guide me in terms of the decisions that I need to make in life. But at the same time, I don't create a level of rigidity to like what it is that I can be and what it is that I can do. Cause it, in the same way of like when you're designing a product or a service for someone um, or for, for people or community, like you need to allow it to be what it needs to be rather than always trying to force it into being something that you envisioned from the beginning.
0: Now, when did you decide to go to grad school? Was that kind of during this time as well?
1: Yeah, that was during this time. I was, Looking at a, a handful of schools, I was looking at Pratt, um, RISD. I almost went to SCAD for the service design program because I had a friend who I was an undergrad with who, who was there and he told me it was a great program. And service design was like, you know, it's still service design is still kind of like a fairly newer field in design in the in the United States. Like it's still catching on. You're starting to see it more so now than it was, you know, years ago. I mean, it's definitely been something that was that's far more developed in in Europe than it has been in the United States, and that's just like a reflection of the the market and how we view the utility of design here at in organizations. And hearing like the service design methods and methodologies, like that, was very interesting to me, and I was ready to go to Scad, but. Also, another friend of mine who I was in undergrad with had mentioned Art Center to me before, and I really liked the rigor that Art Center placed on developing your technical skills, you know, and the level of polish that a lot of the portfolios and a lot of the students had the capacity for after graduating from Art Center. And then also Art Center had this program with the Drucker School of Management, where the graduate industrial design program also could be a dual degree, dual MBA degree. Now, I didn't actually, like, once I got there, I didn't see the usefulness, not necessarily in an MBA, because I did take MBA classes at at UCLA. I do see a benefit in that, but I didn't see the benefit for that particular school that art center was partnering with. So I didn't actually kind of go forward with that, though it was a decision that I made to go there in the first place, to go to Arts Center in the first place, because that option was available.
0: And while you were there, you also managed to kind of work on an internship, which lets you transition into product design, right?
1: Yeah, I I did a couple of internships there. But the education, too, the education, too, in Grad ID, like, you know, the the name can be misleading because it's industrial design, but, like, really a lot of the training was for us to be leader, innovation leaders, to be able to come in and really understand what the the business needs are for a company and help them pivot into creating products and services that now are able to accommodate the changing landscape. And so we would routinely have Different companies come in, and this is kind of, you know, part of the art center education where different companies come in and do like these studio projects. We did one with Uber whenever I was in my, maybe like my third, fourth semester or something like that, where Uber was creating their Uber Air platform. And we worked in groups with other departments, other students from the department so we had like transportation designers automotive designers as well as interaction designers in addition to us graduate industrial design and worked with some of the key executives for that particular unit doing the uber air and our task was really to design what that whole experience would be if we were to create air taxis if uber were to go into this business how do we start to visualize what that whole experience would be all the way from understanding what the airport security type situation would be to like, what is the, the interior of the, the electric vertical landing takeoff vehicle going to be all the way to like really understanding the market. Like, so like if you create this type of service, well, who's going to be the people to use this service and who are going to be the early adopters, And all the way down to the late adopters to the, in order to get this service off of the ground. So it was a pretty involved project that took a whole semester where we build, we built life-size mock-ups to test out what the interior of the vehicle could be and could look like. We designed we did a lot of like architectural design and sketches to understand like, you know, where would we create and put some of these what we call sky ports, which would be the airports for people to access these vehicles, designing also like how would we implement or integrate this into the existing application? So if somebody wanted to catch a an Uber Air vehicle. So it was a pretty involved project that spanned the scope of like a bunch of different design skills from automotive design to interaction design to industrial design um, and whatnot.
0: Kind of sounds like an air taxi in a way.
1: Exactly. It wasn't it was an air taxi and there's there's so many different nuances in terms of like th- what that whole experience could or would be. And also there are limitations to the technology that existed at the time. Still even to this right now, a lot of that technology is still being developed in a way that can make it really feasible and economical to launch a service like that.
0: Yeah, I would imagine also even just getting like FAA certification because unlike something like Uber X, where, you know, anyone that has a driver's license can drive. That doesn't necessarily mean anyone with a pilot's license, I would imagine, would do Uber Air or something like that.
1: Yeah, there's definitely some technical and some licensing, piloting things kind of there, especially also, I mean, you're thinking about just air traffic control as well. Um, oh, yeah, that's right. And that's That's been there for a while. And like there'd be some adjustments and things that would need to be made in order to you know allow for. Another set of vehicles to be in the air.
0: So after you graduated from Art Center College of Design for grad school, you sort of ended up working at a couple of other places before Netflix. You worked at um, a biotech company called Script Health. So you, I guess, in a way managed to get around to doing some work in the medical field, even, you know, in this sort of roundabout way. But then you also worked at IBM, you know, working on products on their data, AI, and cloud integration teams. When you look back at those two experiences specifically, what do you remember the most?
1: It was interesting cuz like the with Script Health, that was, you know, one of my friends who's a pharmacist, like that was his startup that he was creating. And so I was actually working on that while I was in grad school and helping oh, okay. him like really design and and bring to life what the the vision of that product and that service that he was trying to create. So I won't go too deep into it, but like the gist of that really was building out a service to deal with the opioid epidemic and providing the right type of medication for overdoses, things like naloxone to places in rural communities, you know, and there's a, a huge lack of access to the right types of drugs and services to them in the most marginalized communities, the most affected communities. And then so that learning kind of like taking a product from zero to one, the amount of work and effort that it takes to do the research and then finding a a market fit, like pivots and things that need to happen, partnerships that need to be to be made and, and created, and then visualizing the concept and telling the story and the narrative in a way that is going to inspire and communicate what it is about That was also like a crash course for me, like really working with with engineers, as well as like working with outside agencies that were taking my design work and trying to and starting to code it into something and really understanding like what are the specific things that I need to communicate in order to make sure that what I do design ends up being the thing that gets created and it not being some kind of like Mangled version of that because there are details that I left out or things that I didn't communicate that they just had to make a decision on and it may not be the right decision when it comes to IBM one the, of the the thing that I learned at IBM really a lot was was a lot of stakeholder management and also a lot of like leadership skills what it means to manage up as well as how to align people and influence people around a shared objective and a shared goal, and then trying to get things done within a short period of time. I feel like those were some of the key things. And I mean, I can dive really deep into <laughs> into aspects of that. But I think those were like the main things that I've learned. You know, working with people, I think, is an incredibly important part of being the designer, And understanding how to do that effectively, I think, is something that, you know, it takes a lot of designers a lot of time to really understand what it actually means to do that, you know, beyond just your hard technical skills.
0: Now, another thing that you sort of created that came about while you were at Art Center was critical discourse in design. Talk to me about that.
1: Yeah, so like that happened after, like while I was at IBM. So this was um, after my graduate program. I still have a lot of really great connections with a lot of the faculty at Art Center. And after the murder of George Floyd, there was just a lot of energy around like, you know, something needs to be done. I'm in the design community and think about racism. When we think about prejudice, when we think about all of the things like these institutions that are perpetuating these things, like they are design institutions, they're created, you know? So like for me, you know, in addition to like, okay, well, protesting is one thing, but like, based off of my own skill sets and my own kind of proximity to the type of work and things that I do, like, how can I start to impact or influence the change that I want to see in the world? And so I started these conversations with some of my friends who are still faculty at Art Center to try to uncover, like, what is something that we can do? And we didn't really have uh, an idea of, like, what it was going to be. But through the conversations and through a lot of the things that I was talking about in terms of like how, you know, and a quote that I constantly say is that design is the invisible hand that shapes our lived experience. So critical discourse and design came about when we started really thinking about when we think about like oppression, oppression needs physical tools and objects. It needs like a physical space like it's to be it needs to be designed So when you think about, like, you can go throughout history and you can look at, like, what are the tools or the innovations of oppression, like a noose, a prison cell, like all of these different things. And so if you can design for oppression, then you can design for liberation. And critical discourse and design came about, but like, well, what is that conversation of designing for liberation? What does that actually mean? How do we start to translate theory into action And then who are the voices that we need to bring to the table in order to be able to have these conversations? Because when you think about the design industry, also, you know, part where the Black designers is calling out is the 3% or 4%, depending on who you ask, of the people who are designers are, are Black. And so the voices that are the most impacted by the things that are being created in the world are not at the table to voice how they feel things should kind of be. They're not able to provide their cultural intelligence to the institutions and the systems and the tools and the things that get created in the world. So critical discourse and design really was a response to that. It was really a response to, you know, how do we start to now bring in these voices and also to leave people, not with just like new words and new theories, but like a theory that can turn into practice and really starting to understand like how, what the connection between pedagogy, what people are learning, is with practice, you know, how people create, how people experience and actually deliver things into the world.
0: Now, let's talk about design to divest, which it sounds like came out of critical discourse in design. Tell me about that. I know you're one of the founding members of this collective. We've also had another member of the collective on the show before, Michael Collette. But, yeah, talk to me about design to divest.
1: Yeah. So, I was actually like, I, I was, while I was actually creating critical discourse in design, one of my really close friends who was working with Design to Divest, part of Design to Divest, like messaged me, it's like, hey, do you have some capacity to like join the steering committee here? Like, you know, this is what we're doing. And so, like, I joined, you know, Design to Divest. And, you know, at the time, it was really meant to mobilize design skills and uh, different designers to mobilize those design skills around social impact projects such as and and it was very like graphic design based and so i think part of what i started what i was doing whenever i joined the team was like really thinking about like what it actually meant for what what design I best actually meant as a concept and what are the most impactful ways that we can create positive change or the change that we want to see in the world And that started like, you know, over the past two years that we've been just having these discussions and doing projects and working on things to manifest into a version of what it is today, where we have a lot of things that we're going to be releasing um, this year, hopefully. And that really talks about like what it means to divest the inequitable systems that have been designed and created in the world. And how do we start to celebrate and design for the communities on the margins?
0: I mean, I think that came about at such a monumental time, you know, during the summer that you mentioned, you know, where, of course, there were people out in the streets that were protesting against police brutality, talking about the murder of George Floyd again. It seems like this was a time when a lot of people were really looking for this kind of thing. They were looking to hear from Black voices, but also just looking for ways that they can, I guess, channel whatever frustrations they had into something more positive.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was a... (laughs) And not to say that, you know, that like that time still isn't, you know, happening now. But,
0: oh, like, yeah, you know, we're, we're still yeah. in it very much. Yeah,
1: <laughs> we we're very much in it. But like, you know, it, it was reaching like very, it was reaching fever pitches. And it wasn't just in the United States, it was globally, you know, so like me being Nigerian, like seeing, you know, was ha- with, with SARS and like the protests that were happening in, in Nigeria, the protests that were happening in South America, things happening in Brazil, like it was everywhere where you started to see people were really fed up with the institutions and the things that were meant to serve them. But people were just like, nothing is actually serving any of us and nothing is serving us in a way that it's going to provide any sim- level of comfort or any level of support. And it's actually doing the opposite. And so I think, you know, Design to Divest became especially for designers, because I think like so many designers get into design feeling that they can change something or that there's some sense of like positivity that they can use design to affect, but no one ever tells them how. And then it typically falls flat with like very altruistic ideas that really don't connect back to impact. It just connects back to some sense of like moral I don't want to say superiority, but just like a sense of like moral reflection that you did a project that did something, but it doesn't necessarily connect back to impact. And I think, you know, with the idea of design to divest, we really want to to give people a path to connect the things that they do to the impact that they want to see in the world, the impact that they want to see in institutions and an impact that they want to see in the different products and tools and experiences that we that we experience in the world.
0: And now, speaking of that impact, given now that the collective has gone on, now what I guess this will be sort of your second year of going into things. Mm -hmm. What do you want to see Design to Divest accomplish?
1: Quite a lot over time. But I think about like, you know, education is a really core thing in terms of, you know, one of the things that we've identified too is that there are so many designers on the margins, designers of color, but particularly black and indigenous designers who don't have access to any type of content or education that teaches design in a way that validates their culture, in a way that validates their identity, in a way that celebrates the cultural intelligence of their heritage towards the creation of the things that exist in the world. When you look at design, the canon of literature and text that's being taught to designers all are from European white men. And so there's always a a cultural disconnect. And essentially what it does is like informs people getting into design that you need to either erase your culture And assimilate into this culture if you want to find success in this profession, because your culture is is devalued or isn't valued as a producer of good design, if you call something good design. And so part of what the design to divest, you know, my, my hopes for design to divest is to really provide that platform on one hand for black and indigenous designers to be able to have content and community to engage with around design that validates their, their identity, that validates their cultural heritage, and then it brings them to the table of creation. I feel like the world is a group project and typically only a select group of communities and cultures have gotten to participate in creating the institutions, organizations, and businesses that shape the lived experiences for all of us. And I think it's time that we create the space of ownership, I think like this is what equity means, like ownership and creation, and stop blocking these communities that are on the margins, Black indigenous communities from participating in the creation and the stewardship of the world. And I think that I want Design to Divest to be that platform that allows Black and indigenous communities to harness their ability to design through their own cultural intelligence to create and populate the institutions and things that in the world that are going to serve our communities.
0: Who are some of the people that inspire you?
1: It's a tough question because I'm typically just inspired by people in general. I'm inspired by culture in general. Yeah, I obviously I'm inspired by my family, by my parents, aunts and uncles, especially coming from Nigeria, making a way for themselves as expats into the United States and balancing multiple cultures I'm also inspired by other designers, other creators, but also like other people in other professions. I constantly draw inspiration from economists, from lawyers, from doctors, in the way that they approach the work that they do. I can say like, as of late too, I've been inspired by people like Andre Leon Talley and um, Virgil, who both passed, but seeing the impact that they've had. Um and you can kind of see that by the the outpouring of support and the outpouring of of responses that people have to their passing to have that level of impact on community I think is also something that's incredibly inspiring to me.
0: What advice would you give to somebody that is looking to enter into the design field? Cuz it sounds like with you know with your career you've managed to really take that and apply it across a number of different kind of facets of design. And even now you're still kind of paying that forward with the work you're doing in Netflix, but also with this community work through design to divest. So if someone's listening to this and they're like, this is inspiring them to want to get into design in some sort of way, what would you tell them?
1: I mean, one of the the most important things to, as a designer is to, to be curious. And I think that, One thing that I would tell people is just like, you just kind of have to do it. There's so many people who are going to have something to say about whatever it is that you do. And it's also kind of like the, that's the idea of design is that whenever you design, you know, it's, it's there's a difference between art and design in a sense, whereas design is really not meant for yourself. And design is kind of like outward. It's meant to be critiqued by the people that you've created it for. And so like, you can't like wait for perfection, I think. I'll tell people that they have to just kind of go out and do it. But another one of the most important things, too, is that design is a very community driven profession. And I think that, you know, it's not done in isolation. And I think that that's in contrast to the way that we were taught about design. We're always taught about these individual people who are design heroes, whether it's like Dieter Rams or. Frank Gary or whatever, and they're not doing these things alone as individual people. They have a network of people, they're talking to people, they are influenced by people, and they are finding different people who is inspiring to them to communicate with and also build with. And so one of the most important things is to constantly like seek out the people who are doing things that you find interesting And try to have a conversation with them and try to build your own communities because that's going to be the path forward for you finding the opportunities to design the things that you want to design, to create the things that you want to create and with the people that you want to create. And then lastly, too, I would also say is that you really want to start from a place of purpose. And so if you don't really have a purpose yet or you haven't identified what that is, You definitely just take some time to think about it. As everything, it could be an iteration. Your purpose, whenever you were 16, could be different when you're 24 or 50. But having a sense of purpose and principles to back that purpose then allow you to make decisions a lot easier. And it makes you, it gives you something to filter the opportunities that come your way with something that means something more to you than just existing.
0: Where do you see yourself in the next five years? Like what kind of work would you like to be doing?
1: I'm doing a lot of the work that I want to be doing in combination with Design to Divest. a lot of some of the freelance projects that I've been working Mm -hmm. on as well. But I think, you know, more of that, work, you know, more of the work that I'm doing with Design to Divest, more of the creating the platforms, creating archives and things for Black and Indigenous designers to be able to participate in the creation of the world. Also, I mean, I do quite a lot of mentorship. And so I'd love to be able to, to build careers and create more pathways for designers from other marginalized communities including Black communities and, you know, other marginalized communities to have a pathway to create, you know? So like I see, you know, within the next five years, like continuing to like grow and kind of scale the impact that I'm able to have on the design community from both a pedagogical, like educational standpoint, as well as a practice and people standpoint. And so When I think about the practice, it's really illustrating to both the business and design world that you want to be able to take like what it really means to be diverse and and to harness diversity for innovation is being able to take the different cultural knowledge systems that exist, whether it's the Aboriginal system of knowledge or African system of knowledge, and being able to apply that to the problems that you're facing as a society or in your particular company reframing the problem underneath those those systems of knowledge and then allowing those systems of knowledge to be able to deliver on solutions for you and so like changing doing work that allows me to bring more of those different systems of knowledge and those different diverse perspectives into the creation of things and then on the people side of just continuing to bring more of those people who are holders of those knowledge that knowledge the the descendants of african people from different african cultures who hold that knowledge or indigenous people native people and providing a platform for them to use that knowledge that's been passed down to them to design and create things that make the world a better place
0: well, just to wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and your work and all your projects and everything? Where can they find that online?
1: Yeah, so I try to not be so visible online all the time. But I do, you know, they can find me on my Instagram, Aziz underscore Le. In the near future, we'll be releasing a new website for Design to Divest where they can kind of check out some of that work that we're that I'm doing. And, you know, if anyone wants to chat with me or anything like that, they can always shoot me a message on LinkedIn, definitely try to respond to, to people who, who reach out to me and, you know, might not be immediate, but definitely something that I'm open to, to chatting more and more people who, who resonate with some of the things that, I, that I'm doing.
0: All right. Sounds good. Well, Aziz Ali, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. One, of course, for telling your story about how you got into design. But I think it's really important, especially now as a lot of people are really looking at the work they do and try to figure out how it can make an impact in the world. I think the way that you're taking your design knowledge and one, you've been able to apply it to different parts of design, but then two, also using it in a way to pay it forward to the community is something that is super important. And I hope that we get to see a lot more of that in the future. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate
1: it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me.
0: Big, big thanks to Aziz Ali Balogun. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Aziz and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. And of course, thanks to our wonderful sponsor, Brevity & Wit. Brevity & Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They accomplish this through graphic design, presentations, and workshops around IDEA, inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility. If you're curious to learn how to combine a passion for IDEA with design, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity & Wit, creative excellence without the grind. Revision Path is brought to you by LUNCH, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. So what did you think of the interview? Better yet, what do you think about the podcast overall? We'd love to hear from you, so please reach out to us. Don't be a stranger. You can hit us up on Twitter or on Instagram. Just search for Revision Path, all one word. Or leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or over on Spotify. Let everyone you know know about the show because it really helps us grow and reach more people all around the world. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.